Matthew chapter 1, the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Ibuad, and Ibuad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achan, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. May God bless his word to us this morning. Our God and Father, we come before you now and um, we are so thankful that we can continue to worship you as we gather around your word. Thank you for this book and thank you for all that it contains. Thank you for the way that it helps us understand ourselves, for the way that it helps us understand your way with us for ways that it reveals to us your grace and your mercy, for the ways that it exposes who we really are so we can see our need for your grace and mercy. I pray that as we consider these words before us this morning, that um, we will be blessed and that we will learn and that we will grow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We sometimes wonder about genealogies and wonder if they really matter or if they are important. Are they just a list of names? Specifically, as we think of this one that we've just read in the book of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We wonder if we should take this seriously or if it really is important for our lives as followers of Christ. I admit to you that probably as I read that genealogy, it wasn't the most riveting reading that you've ever heard. And in fact, most of you are wondering now, how is he going to pronounce that word? And I suspect that most of you are like me, and maybe you're, maybe you're more holy or sanctified than me. But there's times when I come to genealogies as I'm doing my daily readings, and I read the first name, and I look at the rest, and I just skip through, and blah, 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 and Jesus Christ who is born. We don't take time to read them and think about them. Well, most of us here are not likely able to trace our ancestry back 
14 generations, and then another 14, and then another 14. I think all of us would say our family matters. All of us would say that somehow we want to know who our parents were, who our grandparents were, and if we can know a little bit more, that's helpful. I know some of you here are genealogical buffs. You have got uh, subscriptions to Ancestry.ca and a few of these other websites that you can go digging and you can find out stuff about your family. And um, I've even used some of you to find out stuff about other families, my family. But you enjoy that. It matters to you and you have a, a great interest in that. Some of you are adopted and you have spent at a certain point in your life um, time trying to figure out who your biological parents were. Because it matters to you. It doesn't mean you don't appreciate who your parents were, but you want to know your roots. You want to know your DNA. You want to know who maybe your grandparents were. Some of you have been following the news in this past week are aware of the story in the news about the lady who is going to the Supreme Court to try and get information about sperm donors released. I don't understand fully her motives, but I think in part, for some, it is because they want to know their roots. They want to know who they're connected to. They want to know their biological ancestry because we know that DNA matters. As we come to this scripture, then we find out that DNA does matter. And it's important for us to consider it in the life of Jesus Christ. As we think about this genealogy, maybe the, the first place for us to come is, I think, maybe one of the most obvious. And it's simply this, is it matters because it's part of scripture. And I think we need to understand that when we think of Scripture and we come to a passage like 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, which we are so familiar with, we sometimes have a hard time applying it to a genealogy. And yet, as we read in Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Beloved, that applies to genealogies as well. And these verses that Matthew has recorded for us are breathed out by God and are profitable for us. So there is value in reading them and thinking about them. I uh, think of just a couple of things which we will likely touch on as we consider uh, a little bit more. But certainly, they root Jesus in history. And I think it's sometimes important for some of us to realize that Jesus was a real human being. That he was part of the human race. That he really is one of us. That he has flesh and blood. That he was connected to mankind. This genealogy assures us of his ancestry and his history. I think further than that, it also ties Jesus to a specific family. If he weren't tied to a specific family, some would say, well, yeah, how do you know? And yeah, yeah, he was part of the human race. But no, as Matthew helps us understand, he was part of a specific family. We know his ancestors. We know where he came from. We know how he came through the human race. I think, thirdly, they connect us, they connect Jesus to the fulfillment of Scripture. Specifically, the promises and the prophetic words of God in Scripture concerning the Messiah the long-awaited Savior of the world. They help us understand how Messiah came through the human race and was brought here by God to be our Savior. 
it tells us something right away as Matthew opens this passage. He says, the book of genealogy, uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Interesting, that word is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 5 and I think Genesis chapter 4, as it, or, or chapter, uh, maybe chapter 2, maybe chapter 4, uh, of the beginnings. And it's a way that Matthew have of telling us of the human origins of Jesus. He is about to give the record of ancestry of the one that we call Jesus Christ. He reminds us that Jesus is fully human. We will get to another part of Jesus' nature next week, but it's important for us to remember and understand that Jesus is fully human, flesh and blood as you and I have. He begins by telling us, in part, that he is the son of David. This is Matthew's way of reminding us that Jesus is in line, he's in the succession to the royal throne of King David. That the Messiah would finally reign on that throne. And through Nathan the prophet, God had promised David, he said, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is Matthew's way of demonstrating that that prophecy is now being fulfilled. We find the same sort of prophecy um, in uh, in Isaiah chapter uh, chapter nine, where he says, "For unto us a child is born, and a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And listen carefully: on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness." From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will do this. And so even as we read these first words, what we understand is that God through the, through, through, through Matthew is demonstrating to us and rooting David in human history and more specifically in the line of David to fulfill the promises that God has made through his prophets. He also tells us that he's the son of Abraham. God had repeated his promise to Abraham. He says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Later again, he says, in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What Matthew is telling us here and reminding us here is that Jesus is the seed of Abraham through all the nations of the world will be blessed. We see that, do we not? We come from all corners of this world. We are united in the same, by the same uh, truth that Jesus Christ is our Savior. Truly, this promise is being worked out through Jesus Christ as the promise to Abraham is that all the nations of the world will be blessed through his seed. And that seed is Jesus Christ. And so Matthew is demonstrating to us that Jesus is in the royal line of David and that he is the seed of Abraham through which all the nations of the world will be blessed. This kind of uh, genealogy was absolutely important to the Jews. If somebody just came along and said, you know, Jesus is, is in the line of David, they would say, ah, come on. And they would say, no, I can prove it. And they would bring out the lists of genealogies, which were public records, and they would say, see, this was his father, this was his grandfather, this was his great-great-grandfather, this was his great-great-great-grandfather, and all the way back, they would prove For the Jew, this was intensely important. I think, though, what we also learn in here, and I I think it's part of the inspiration of Scripture, 
is that woven through this genealogy is an illustration of the great spiritual battle in which we are all engaged. This isn't just a story of men and women and and them begatting and them begatting and children being born. But in this story and in this genealogy, we see this fight taking place. We see that at turn after turn, the evil one is trying to bring destruction in the human race. That the evil one is doing all that he can to thwart the promises of God and the prophecies of God. We see them through the men that reigned on the thrones. We see them through the women that are listed in this, in this genealogy. That at every turn, the evil one is doing his best to undermine the plan and the promises of God. But what we can see and what we find hope is that God is bigger and more powerful than the evil one. That God is the one who is able to overcome our worst sin, our worst rebellion, our constant treachery. He is able to overcome that and bring about his purposes for our good and for the good of mankind. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. I think the second thing that we look at before we get to some of the applications of this genealogy is that there are difficulties here. I acknowledge them. Particularly when you, care, when you compare Joseph and Mary's line together. You on your own can go through this genealogy in Matthew and you will see that it's well structured. You'll see how it's divided neatly into three sections with two pivot points of, of King David and the deportation to Babylon. You'll also find that it is indicated that there are 14 generations between in each of those sections. Now, if you were to add them up, you would you would recognize a couple of things. One, that when he's talking about 14 generations, there are names that were skipped. And that when he speaks of, was the father of, that is often a term which means was the ancestor of. So it's not direct lineage necessarily that's being uh, indicated, simply that he is in the line that, This was the ancestor of. So there is a connection, a biological connection, but you might skip a generation or two. But probably one of the more disconcerting questions, if you add it all up, the last group of 14 is not 14, but 13. There have been a lot of suggestions offered for why that might be. To be honest with you, I don't know. I don't yet have an answer. None are really convincing to me. And so I trust and wait that should God tarry at some point, something will be revealed, some archaeological dig will bring forth evidence. But for now, I trust the truthfulness of Scripture, even though I can't make sense of this, what seems to be, difference in counting. I think, though, probably what's even more difficult is when you compare the two genealogies together, this one and the one in Luke chapter 3, you find some unique differences. Some of them are stylistic. Matthew's genealogy um, begins with um, uh, uh, it begins with David uh, or Abraham and moves its way towards Christ. Luke's genealogy begins with Christ and moves its way back through David and Abraham all the way back to Adam. He adds a whole section in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Luke. One of the things that both of the genealogies make clear is that Joseph was not the literal father of Jesus. Matthew puts it this way, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. 
But the difficulty comes when you compare the, the section of, of Luke and the section of Matthew that deal with the lineage from David down. It would be okay if we were dealing with two completely different people, but we're dealing with the same individual, Jesus Christ. And what is more is both lines trace uh, Jesus through the adopted father, Joseph, the husband of Mary, uh, of whom the Lord was born. Matthew says that Joseph was the son of Jacob, who descended from David through David's son and successor, King Solomon. Well, Luke tells us that Joseph was the son of Heli, who descended from David through Nathan, who was also David's son, but Solomon's brother. How do you reconcile those two differences? A lot of suggestions, again, have been proposed. I think the best suggestion comes from a man, Donald Gray Barnhouse, of whom a few commentators follow. And I think it makes the most sense. We're going to traverse a little bit of difficult ground, so follow me as we go through this. And then we'll get to some of the application. But first of all, as I've said, it's important to understand that in both Matthew and Luke, Scripture is clear, Joseph was not the father of Jesus. We will see in a couple of weeks that it was God who was the father of Jesus. If Jesus then had no human father, he could only be a physical descendant of David through his mother, Mary. But the legal right to rule always came through the father's side. And this needed to be the case for Jesus also. So Luke demonstrates to us that it is through Mary that Jesus is literally a blood descendant of David. But Matthew proves to us that it's through his adopted father, Joseph, that Jesus is legally in the line of David. Now, this becomes even more important when we consider a couple other scriptures. One of them is a difficult one, and it's found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22, verse 30. There God spoke through Jeremiah to Jeconi, which we read was the last king before the deportation. And this is what the Lord said. Record this man, Jeconi, as childless, a man who will not be successful in his lifetime. None of his descendants will succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. That's a problem. God had cursed the kingly line through David. The royal line, in essence, was terminated with Jeconi. It's as if he had been childless. And it was his uncle, Zedekiah, not his son, who succeeded him. This promise, prophecy, was literally fulfilled. The line ceased at Jeconi. So do you see a problem here? How are we to reconcile the prophecy of Jeremiah that the line has ceased with the promise through Samuel which he said, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. How can Messiah ever possibly come through the royal line of David? Messiah had to come from the royal line in order to be a descendant of Jeconi. But if this were to happen, then the prophecy of God to Jeremiah was false. Well, it's solved in these genealogies. See, God in his amazing sovereignty and God in the way that he works out the the directions of mankind worked this all out such that Joseph was the father of Jesus, not biologically, but rather legally. 
When Joseph named Jesus, the act of naming is a way of saying, I take responsibility for, I take ownership of. When he named Jesus, as he did when Jesus was born, Jesus became the legal descendant through Joseph, not a direct descendant through Jeconi. And so it is something like adoption. You see, Jesus could not have been a literal son of Joseph and then have laid claim to the throne of David. He was, however, legally a son. And therefore, he inherited the right to sit on the throne. Do you see the amazing way that God worked that out? Luke, on the other hand, ties Jesus back to David through Mary. And that's how I think even the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 is fulfilled, where, where after the fall, God says to Satan, he would destroy him. He said, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So I say that only to say that the differences between Matthew and Luke can be worked out, but also that the differences between Matthew and Luke are critical If scripture is to be fulfilled, we see in these genealogies the amazing way of God, how he works out his plan and his will, even though mankind does his very best to thwart it. So then how do we begin to make some sense of this genealogy? I think this is where we move now into some of the more stunning impacts of this. It's an ancestry with four outcast women. This is totally unexpected. It was not typical for Jews to include women in a a genealogy. Matthew included four of them. All of them were outcast, and a few of them were questionable in character. As I thought about that, I thought, you know, likely every single one of us has people of shady character in our family. And we do all that we can to cover that up. We have genealogies and we sometimes forget to mention a certain uncle or a certain sister or a certain son or a certain daughter. A grandparent or a great-grandparent because of their past and because of their history. We kind of edit our genealogy. Matthew does not edit the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why? We'll look at that in a couple of moments. But let's look at the ladies that are included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Tamar. Some of you may know Tamar. Some of you, this is the first time you've ever heard of her. I'd encourage you this afternoon to go back and read Genesis 38. And you'll find out a little bit about Tamar. But in Matthew chapter 1 verse 3, it says, To Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. What kind of a woman was Tamar? It's not a great story. Genesis 38 is a story of incest, prostitution, and deception. And neither Judah nor Tamar come out looking good. Judah, you see, had chosen Tamar as the wife of his oldest son, Er. But all we read in Genesis 38 is that Er was evil. We don't know what he did, but we know it was so grievous that God struck him dead. And then, as was the custom in those days, that then if there was no child, then the next son would be given to the 
wife of the first son so that a child could be produced. Onan didn't like that prospect. And we read there that Onan refused to father children with Tamar. And so God struck him dead also. Judah had a third son. He was a bit gun shy now. And he promised her, he says, when he's a little young right now, when he grows up, you can have her or have him. But he's not going to be ready for some time. What he did was he sent her home to go live with her mom and dad. She was consigned to that home to wear mourning carb until such time as she could remarry. During this particular time, Judah's wife died. After a period of mourning, says that he went out to check out his sheep business. Somehow, word got back to Tamar that Judah was in town. This is her father-in-law. And she was frustrated, knowing that Judah's son certainly was of marriageable age now. And somehow, that Judah had forgotten his promise to give her his son. So she changed her mourning clothes. And she put on clothes that identified her as a prostitute. And she put herself in Judah's path. Not realizing who she was, Judah made a deal for her services. As a result of their encounter, twins were conceived, Perez and Zerah. And so it is Perez who carried on the Messianic line. It was this Tamar that is part of the ancestry of Jesus Christ. We know nothing more about her. But is it not a stunning reality that God would continue the messianic line through such sordid behavior of both Tamar and Judah? He really must be a God of grace. And then we come to Rahab. Rahab, I think, is more familiar to us. Rahab was also a prostitute. I guess I shouldn't say Tamar was a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute by profession. Not only that, she was a Canaanite, a mortal enemy of the Jews. She is the one who hid the two spies that Joshua had sent to check out Jericho. Her home provided a natural cover because visitors would often come and use the services of a prostitute. But she was also a liar. Her lie diverted attention away from the two men when city officials came looking for them. And as we read, she understood something of the power of the Israelite God. And she made a deal with them to save her family from complete destruction. The men agreed to save her and her family if, when they came back to destroy the city, they were all gathered in the same room and there was a scholarly cord hanging out of her window on the wall. We know that when they came, they saved her and her family. But hers was not only a physical deliverance. Hers was a remarkable spiritual deliverance. Because she became a follower of the true God, the God of Israel. Rahab was also in the Messianic line. Stunning reality. A prostitute by trade. A foreigner by birth. And yet we see something of the wideness of the mercy of God. Thirdly, there's Ruth. We spent a number of weeks in the book of Ruth last year, or this year. Ruth was also a Gentile, but she was a Moabite. Her people were the result of incest. 
When Lot had fled Sodom and Gomorrah with his family, you remember his, they were leaving, his wife turned around and she became a pillar of salt. Well, you're getting a real story today. She became a pillar of salt and Lot continued on with his two daughters. When they got to their place, we don't know how long they were there, but it became quickly evident that there were going to be no husbands, it seemed, for his two daughters. They didn't like the prospect of having no husbands and of being childless. And so they decided upon a plan to get their father drunk, and then on successive nights, they would each sleep with their father in hope that they would be impregnated. As it turns out, each was. The oldest daughter named her son Moab, from which come the Moabites. The history with the Israelites seemed to be one of constant sexual assault. It was the Moabite women who distracted the Israelite men as they sat on the border, waiting to get into the land of Canaan. Moses had warned that no Ammonite and Moabite may ever enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, may ever enter the Lord's assembly. Yet Ruth, a Moabite, became the wife of Boaz. Ruth received the grace and mercy of God and turned to become a follower of the true God. A foreigner of sordid ancestry, also was part of the Messianic line. In fact, it was her great-grandson, David, who was the center of this genealogy. As I finished reading this section on Rahab, I reflected on Micah chapter 6 and a song that's written there, Who is a pardoning God like thee? God who pardons our sins and our trespasses. And then Bathsheba. I don't know why Matthew doesn't mention her by name. But his reference is obvious. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We know that Uriah's wife was Bathsheba. And this too is not a pretty story. One day when kings are normally out fighting, David stayed home and was out walking on the rooftop of his room, of his his palace, And he looks out and notices a woman bathing. Unable to restrain himself, he calls for her to be brought to him. Before long, they are intimate. By morning, she is back home. And David hopes that this is the end of the story. But as we know, their sexual encounter results in a pregnancy. Which, by the way, loved ones, is why sexual relations are reserved for marriage. Because you never know when a child will be conceived. And God has designed that children be brought up in a stable home of a husband and a wife. David attempts to cover up the pregnancy by bringing Uriah home from the battle, getting him drunk, and then trying to encourage him to go home and to have sexual relations with his wife. He refuses. Turns out Uriah is more a man of integrity than David. As a matter of principle, he refuses to spend the night with his wife while his men are sleeping in tents on the battlefield. When this doesn't work, we remember that David sends him back into the battlefield and arranges for his murder. To make matters worse, he takes Bathsheba as his wife. The child conceived through adultery dies. David repents of his sin. Bathsheba conceives again and gives birth to a baby boy, Solomon the next in the link of the messianic line. 
Bathsheba, guilty of idolatry as David was, known as a Hittite, is part of the line that will culminate in the birth of Jesus Christ. This is some genealogy. As one person wrote, it's better likely to be called the Hall of Shame. When you add in this the rest of the characters in the Kings, and you see the evil and the wickedness that was there, it doesn't appear to be the genealogy of a king, of one who would be in the messianic line. Many of us would hide from such a family tree as this. We would attempt to magnify the good and to hide the bad, but not God. What's going on here? Why is it like this? These are the things that struck me this past week. First, here is humanity on display. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's be honest about our families. Let's be honest about the sin and the destruction that comes in our lives. Some of our sins are more public than others, but sinners we all are. And I would think that a genealogy of all perfect people would be suspect, wouldn't you? If we said this is the line of Jesus and his mother was perfect and his father was perfect and his brother was perfect and his grandfather was perfect, come on. You're not living in the real world. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each of us has gone astray. None of our family trees are exempt. I think secondly, though, as I look at this genealogy and I look at what God is doing, I see grace and mercy on display. We are so in need of a Savior. We so mess things up. We are so in need of one who brings foreigners into his family, one who brings adulterers into his family, one who brings prostitutes into his family, one who brings murderers into his family. We are so in need of the grace of God to redeem us from ourselves and to make us what we could never become on our own. Loved ones, know, know this, that God's work is not hindered or hampered by anything that you have done or anything that anyone in your family has ever done. The grace and the mercy of God is bigger and greater and stronger than anything that has happened in your life or in the life of your family. And here is our king on display. Aren't you glad that Jesus is a friend of sinners? Aren't you glad that Jesus willingly chose to identify with you and I so that he could come and say, I want to be your friend. I want to save you from yourself. I want to save you from death. I want to save you from your sins. He was like us in every way. He took on flesh and blood, and yet he was without sin. He lived perfectly before his Father. That's why we can gather around a table like this. It was our sin that brought Jesus to earth. That's why Jesus came. He is Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And one more thing. What's your family story? Who are you descended from? Some of you hold deep, dark family secrets. Some of you are paralyzed by who you are and by what's in your family. I want you to know today, and I want you to hear this very clearly, 
You are not doomed by your ancestry. You are not bound by your past or by the past of anyone else connected with your family. Your DNA does not determine your future. You are not trapped forever by the consequences of those in your family. God is able to bring about good from evil. God is able to bring about salvation from destruction. Look at Jesus. He was like us in every way and yet without sin. He lived righteously before the Father. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in his life and his death. The cross makes it possible for you and I to start again. The cross makes it possible for the past to be absolutely broken and crushed in our lives. Because at the cross, we die. At the cross, we die. And Jesus says that something amazing happens there. That our past is broken and a new future begins. Behold, old things are passed away and some things become new. All things become new. Do you get that? I believe that down to the very core of our being, to our DNA and deeper, that God works this miracle of transformation, that we become new. We become sons and daughters of God. And our past no longer holds us. This is exampled for us in this genealogy. So if you are a child of God, and you are gripped by fear that you or someone else you love is somehow doomed because of your ancestry, look at Christ. Know that God is gracious and merciful. See the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And if you are here today and the evil one is sitting on your shoulders and he continues to whisper in your ear, you don't have a hope in heaven. Look at where you come from. You turn to him and say, you lie. Be quiet. Get away from me. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. Beloved, as we started out, all scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable. James Boyce once recounted how Ron Blankley, a former area director for Campus Crusade for Christ, was walking through the student union building of the University of Pennsylvania. One day he saw a student reading a Bible. And he remembered Philip's approach to the Ethiopian. So he walked over to him and he says, do you understand what you are reading? The student replied, no, as a matter of fact, I don't. I'm reading the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke, and I don't understand them because they seem so different. Blankly sat down and explained the genealogies, much as we've talked about them this morning. The result of that explanation, this young man came to faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior. This is the power of the word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable. May we profit from our study of this God's word this morning. Let's pray.